Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions, an accidental company. Hey everyone and welcome to season three, episode number 18 of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This for Friday, May 31st, 2019. It's the Hey, I'm in St. Louis for the Cup Final edition of the Bobcast. In fact, our hotel is just around the corner from the St. Louis Arch. Walked by it yesterday. Doesn't get more St. Louis than that. And I will uh, let you in on a little secret of sorts. Uh, This Bobcast is being recorded live to tape in the Stanley Cup. Not the bowl of the Stanley Cup. Inside the actual base of the trophy which explains the lovely submarine quality resonance that you're hearing. And as you know, as a Bobcast listener, we spare no expense on this venture. And you know our motto, no production value, no guests, no good. Kind of reminds me of that uh, guy that owns the Italian restaurant I went to in Pienza, where you're greeted at the door and he goes, no pizza, no pasta, no Coke. You still want dinner? Well, if you still want dinner, uh, stay tuned. Um, it's also the, uh, the end of May, beginning of June edition of the Bobcast. And on that note, all I can say is buckle up, because if you're a real hockey fan who follows all the ins and outs, the trades, the talk, the gossip, everything else, June is without question. I mean, it's not even close. It's become the most important month of the NHL calendar. There's far more news and gossip and rumors in June than any month. The Cup gets presented in June. The players get drafted in June. And let's be perfectly honest, June is that month when you really get a handle on what your team's plan is for next year and how they're going to go about doing it. Um, we got buyouts, we got trade rumors, everything. The, the crop of restricted free agents this year is insane. So June is is a far more fascinating time than, say, the trade deadline. And do not let that July 1st date for free agent frenzy fool you. All the heavy lifting for free agency, of course, is done in June, including now the shopping period for the free agents, both unrestricted and restricted, in the week leading up to July 1st. So where do we even begin today? I I guess we start with the Cup Final. Although, by the time you're listening to this, the 1-1 series could be something completely different. Um, I like Boston's game in Game 1. I like St. Louis's game in Game 2. And where we go from here, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, it looks to me like it's going to be a long, hard-fought series. And, and I guess it's going to be long no matter what. Uh, we've got this extra day off between Game uh, 2 and 3. Uh, it's a killer. Um, but, uh, listen, I can't complain about the days off between games. I work for TV networks. And TV is pretty much the reason... We have the extra days off in terms of getting the right schedule for TVs and also not wanting to have conflicts with the NBA Finals, especially this year. Which brings us to this. How about those Raptors? Let's talk some hoops. Call me Bobby Hoops. James Duffy is Jimmy Hoops. I miss Jimmy Hoops. He's usually here with me at the Stanley Cup Final, but... uh, Given the, uh, the importance of the Raptors being in the NBA Finals, uh, Jim, James Duffy 
Uh, our erstwhile hockey host on the panel has been transferred to the basketball department. So he's gone from just being James Duffy, our panel host, to Jimmy Hoops, doing stuff with Chris Bosch and uh, following the Raptors and the Golden State Warriors. So uh, good for Jimmy Hoops. And, and really the whole country is going crazy for the Raptors. It's not just Toronto. Um, I watched uh, game one between the uh, Golden State Warriors and the Raptors in my St. Louis hotel room. Big win for the Raps. And um, and I think most Canadians view Toronto as the city that they love to hate. Certainly the Maple Leafs as the team they love to hate. But you can see how the Raptors and the Blue Jays back when they were winning World Series um, or even a few years ago with the Bautista bat flip and everything else, how it can create coast-to-coast -coast excitement for sporting fans in Canada. And because there's only one Major League Baseball team in Canada, the Jays, sorry Expos fans, we would love Montreal to have the Expos back, but they're not there right now. Uh, and because the Vancouver Grizzlies are long gone, sorry Vancouver, um, you know, the Raptors and the Jays end up being national teams more than just Toronto teams, and they do really create that coast-to-coast -coast excitement. And, and with Toronto in the NBA Finals for the first time, the actual city of Toronto, forget about the Raptors for a moment, my city, my hometown, it's getting unbelievable exposure south of the border and internationally and revealing itself for like the world-class city that it is. And it, re and it really is a great city. Um, I know people like to rag on it and, and people from the rest of Canada don't love Toronto or what it stands for, but I was born and raised in Toronto or close enough Scarborough, part of metropolitan Toronto before they started using the term GTA for greater Toronto area. And it is my home and I've always loved it. And I, and I really did witness it because I was born in 56 and grew up in the 60s. I've witnessed Toronto going from being what used to be called Toronto the Good, where you couldn't get an alcoholic beverage after midnight on Saturday night, where you couldn't order um, a beer on a Sunday unless you were having it with a meal, or in some cases, you couldn't even do that. Um, you know, and the, the, the nickname Toronto the Good was always a nod to Toronto's pristine Presbyterian or WASP roots such as it is, and, and I understand that because, you know, I, I, well, I'm not a churchgoer necessarily, but, uh, you know, back in the day, I did go to St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church for Sunday school when I was a little kid, and, um, and obviously I'm, I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and uh, uh, the, the, the very uh, picture of what a Torontonian used to be, and I, I really witnessed it Toronto becomes such a vibrant and multicultural hub. And I think the Raptors are definitely a tangible outgrowth of that. And I think it's so very cool to see on so many levels, both for our city and our country. And you see the Jurassic Parks that are springing up all over the country, literally thousands and thousands of people going outdoors to watch the Raptors game and have a great time with it. So listen, I, I'm not a huge basketball fan. I, I'm a fully admitted bandwagon jumper. I think I've only ever been to one or two Raptor games in my life. Now, the hockey season running parallel to the NBA, it's not exactly conducive to me having discretionary time to go watch hoops. But I did get in on the ground floor of the NBA in Toronto, I should point out, back in the 1970s for a, I don't know, three, four, five-year period. The old Buffalo Braves, may they rest in peace, they played regular season games each year for three or four years at Maple Leaf Gardens. And I was in high school at the time. And I used to go down and buy tickets in my high school days and, 
and watch the Buffalo Braves. So I know all about two for McAdoo, Big Bob McAdoo, Ernie D, Ernie D. Gregorio, um, Randy Smith, Dr. Jack Ramsey, the coach. So I do have some basketball roots. So um, yeah, I'm a Raptor bandwagon jumper for sure, but I'd like to get a little credit for my Buffalo Braves days as a paying customer back at Maple Leaf Gardens. So good luck to the Raps. Um, everybody in Toronto and Canada, enjoy the run. And I am very envious of my pal Jimmy Hoops getting to be there on the ground covering the NBA Finals. Okay, off of basketball, back to hockey. Uh, we should maybe talk a little bit about officiating. I mean, everybody's been talking about officiating in these playoffs for all the obvious reasons, well-documented. Uh, the Joe Pavelski injury, or we call it the Cody Eakin major that wasn't a major, that led to four power play goals that... Uh, some people think knocked the Vegas Golden Knights out of the playoffs. Uh, the Gabriel Landeskog, uh, uh, was it offside, was it not offside, that uh, ultimately benefited the San Jose Sharks again in that Colorado-San Jose game seven. And um, obviously the hand pass from Timo Meyer to Eric Carlson that led to a game-winning goal in overtime. We've had pucks coming off netting, pass to another player, Referee didn't see it in the back of the net. Uh, good goal. Shouldn't have been a good goal, uh, although the rules say it's a good goal. And on and on and on we can go. Um, the reason we need to talk about the officiating now is because it was interesting and instructive that NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman at his annual State of the Union address before Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Final in Boston um, got pretty specific about the issues of officiating. And, and I think the commissioner, who quite often puts on his lawyer hat and sometimes at the, uh, uh, he ends up getting fans angry at him when he talks like a lawyer, um, put on his fan hat um, before game one and said that when he saw the Timo Meyer hand pass to Eric Carlson that scored and was the game-winning goal that he, he thought his head was going to explode. And, and I guess he said that as the commissioner of the National Hockey League, but he said it also in, in a way that could be interpreted by the fans as he's one of us because our heads wanted to explode as well. How could that possibly happen? How could the officials on the ice not see Timo Meyer's hand pass? And how, if they couldn't see it, could the league not call and tell the officials reverse the call? There's no way that should be a goal in such a crucial circumstance. And, and so, as I say, when, when Gary Bettman goes before Canadian Parliament and says there's no link between playing hockey and CTE and, and makes that argument, which, by the way, I think he's on the wrong side of science on, um, and he attracts a lot of criticism for that, and I think rightfully so, um, when he comes to game one of the Stanley Cup final and basically says, hey, um, the system as it's currently constructed with our officials is kind of broken and we need to fix it and we are going to fix it, um, then probably we deserve some credit for that. Now, having said that, we've got to see exactly what it is that the league comes up with. And, and while, the Stanley Cup, while the Stanley Cup final has been going on, I don't think there's any question that Gary Bettman and Bill Daly and people at head office working along with Stephen Wacom, the director of officiating, working with the hockey ops guys, Coley Campbell, Mike Murphy, and others, um, that they're, they're working behind the scenes to try to come up with the parameters of more video review um, to eliminate a lot of the issues that we've seen. 
But what they're spending a lot of time talking about is, is what's called details. Uh, that's T-A-I-L-S. Put it in quotation mark, tails. If you spend any time speaking to Wacom or Coley Campbell or Mike Murphy or anybody from the league, they will often make reference to tails. Now, what are tails? Well, tails are basically the unintended consequences or fallout of making decisions, specifically as it results to officiating, that come back to bite you in the ass. And case in point would be the... Um, Coaches Challenge video review for offside and what a mess over the years that has become. Um, there were a lot of tales or leftovers that maybe were not fully anticipated at the time that they made the decision to go to video review for uh, offside. But in any case, um, you know, whether it's a glove pass or whether it's coming a, a puck coming off the netting, uh, the protective netting, and basically means it was out of play, but the referees didn't see it. They've got to come up with a system whereby they can somehow remain some level of efficiency and not slow the game down to a crawl, but get the calls right. And uh, people at home think it's easy. Uh, well, I just, yeah, just pick the obvious ones. But it, it, it doesn't work like that. Case in point. When the NHL general managers were at a meeting in Boca and they were asked about the play where the puck goes off the protective netting and it's technically out of play, but none of the officials on the ice see the puck. If it comes back into play, um, the, gen the general managers were asked, what if a guy picks up the puck, makes a couple of plays, and then, find and then eventually scores a goal, the, team's the, the, the team in the offensive end that benefited from the puck not being whistled down because it hit the protective netting, they score a goal. Do you want to go back to video review on that? And the general manager said, no. There's got to be a statute of limitations on this. So what they did was they just drew a line in the sand, so to speak, that said, if the puck comes off the netting and goes directly to a player who shoots it in the net, that can be reviewed. And that can be a disallowed goal. But we're not going to let the play go on for 10 or 20 or 30 seconds and then go back. So a lot of this talk, whether it's offside, well, we have the offside rule already in place. There's no statute of limitations on the offside. If it's a bad zone entry, it's a bad zone entry, even if it's 90 seconds later. Um, and, and a lot of what they're talking about now is, um, what if the hand pass occurred 90 seconds before the goal is scored. You know, when do you stop and start the statute of limitations on some of these things? So yeah, we want to use video review to get it right. We want to give the referees help, but how far back do you go? And where do you draw the line? And so there's all of those things need to be worked on. Now, we should point out there's a June 11th meeting of the competition committee, and the competition committee involves NHL people, NHLPA people, and um, it's really the body where the final changes, um, if anything's going to get signed off on, it needs to go through the competition committee. So they're trying to prepare something to give to the competition committee that, they can, that can be looked at. There's also an NHL general managers meeting on June 20th. I believe that will be in Vancouver the day before uh, the first of the two-day NHL entry draft, June 21st and June 22nd in Vancouver. So um, we're obviously going to have, as Bettman said, at the State of the Union address before Game 1 in Boston, we are going to have more video review. It's going to be expanded, but the devil is always in the details with these things, and we want it to be for, for goal-scoring plays primarily, 
But, I mean, you know, and again, comes back to the, the slippery slope of where do you draw the line? Okay, people are saying, yeah, the five-minute major, Cody Eakin got on Pavelski. Referee needs to be able to review that himself on his iPad or have somebody call down and tell him, hey, man, you, you want to have a look at this because that, that ain't a five-minute major. Um, fair enough. Uh, everybody's agreed on that because we saw the, the devastating consequences the, what happened when San Jose scored four power play goals and, and put a, a spike through the heart of the, the Vegas Golden Knights in these playoffs. Fair enough. But now well, what about double minors? They're important. An entire game or a playoff series could turn on a, an incorrectly assessed double minor for high sticking. What if a teammate high sticked his own teammate but the opposing player got, got nailed for it? Do we not want to know that? So now, okay, well, yeah, we'll do double minors then. Well, then what about puck over glass, two-minute minors? Uh, what if the puck deflected and nobody saw it? And we, you know, so where do we draw the line? Are we going to officiate the entire game by video? And, and so that's what I'm interested to see. And it'll be fascinating for me what Bettman, Daly, Wacom, Murphy, Campbell, et al., come up with to give to the competition committee, to give to the general managers, and to see where we're at. So fascinating stuff, but uh, as I said on the last edition of the Bobcast, before this one, as well as this one, be careful what you wish for. Um, that's all I'm saying. Um, and in that regard, a question here from Thomas Kane. Hey, Bob, my name is Tom, and I'm from New York. I think I may have a possible solution to the review officiating issues that are impacting the playoffs, I want to get your take on it. What would you say to each team having three reviews? If they lose the first, it's a loss of their timeout. If they lose their second, it's a delay of game penalty. And if they dare try a third and lose, it's a penalty shot against. Each review can only last two minutes tops. And if it is still inconclusive after two minutes have expired, then the challenging team loses. Just a thought. Keep up the good work, Bob. You are the man. And then Tom quickly followed that up. Uh, in fact, it was, let's see, 17 minutes later, he sends another email. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that in my proposal with free reviews, any play, for example, a penalty, offsides, hands pass, goal, etc., is reviewable. Thanks again. Um, I hear where you're coming from, Tom, and everybody's got different ideas on what the statute of limitations should be on how long video reviews is two minutes. Why is it two minutes? Why not two and a half minutes? Why not 90 seconds? Around and round we go. Um, but the, the whole issue with the various penalties that are associated, at the end of the day, what you want to do is you want to get it right. You want to get it right as quickly as you can. So sometimes having less specific stuff in the rule book and more open-ended stuff where, you know, my pal James Duthie, who, of course, now we call Jimmy Hoops, but when he was James Duthie, um, the puckhead, you know, he would always argue, let's just try to use some common sense. And I understand the common sense approach. The common sense ones are the easy ones. And there should be a way that we should be able to employ the common sense approach on the easy ones. But we're going to get some hard ones, and that's where you need some parameters. So we'll see what the, uh, the National Hockey League comes up with uh, later this month. Um, here's an interesting email on the same officiating subject from Matt. He says, hey, Bob, first off, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your already busy schedule, especially in those months that are not named March, to provide us with your insider take on many of the questions all of the other listeners and I have. Before I get to my question, I also have a wine recommendation for you. Sounds good to me, Matt. 
Uh, though not an avid wine drinker myself, I have heard from many mouths that the Vin Vineland Estates Cobb Frank is a bottle numerous people have greatly enjoyed. Uh, Vineland Estates is just a stone throw away of my hometown of Grimsby, Ontario. Also has plenty of other wines that can turn a non-wine drinker such as myself into a self-proclaimed wine snob. Grimsby, by the way, home of the Grimsby Peach Kings, as well as Kevin Bieksa. Uh, anyways, uh, but Mac was on to say, but enough with the talk on grape juice. As I sit here writing this message, the Boston Bruins are 10 seconds away from winning their second round matchup against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Earlier in the game, as many others saw and will discuss for the days to come, the unfortunate hit Charlie McAvoy laid against Josh Anderson occurred, though the hit, in my opinion, was suspendable. That isn't what I'm left here sitting and thinking about. Instead, all that is running through my mind is the spotlight left on the rest after making a poor decision or call in any given game, playoffs or not. It is becoming more apparent to me the scrutiny the refs face after making a blown call such as the McAvoy hit or the Joe Pavelski, the hit on Joe Pavelski earlier in the playoffs. Like players, refs have bad games, but they also have great games. I understand fans pay to watch the players and not the refs. But if you're going to highlight a ref's poor decisions so much in the media or in everyday banter, I feel we should all talk more on some of the great calls refs make as well. I guess this was more of a comment rather than a question, but I would love to hear your take on the topic. Thank you and continue all your great work. Matt Wazalesco from Grimsby, Ontario. Well, I, I only read that because the poor referees are battered and bruised. And yes, if they make mistakes, they deserve to be criticized. They're professionals in their field and it's a public business that comes with all the scrutiny um, but I also often feel for the referees because this game is played at lightning quick speed and it's so so difficult to officiate and part of the reason why we do need expanded video review and why even though I say it's a slippery slope and be careful what you wish for is because these guys need the help and uh, and and they don't like to make mistakes I can guarantee you, um, these these officials, they have a tremendous amount of integri integrity, they have a tremendous amount of pride, and it cuts them to the core when they make mistakes that dramatically impact games. And those mistakes also dramatically impact their careers because they don't get to move on in the playoffs. And they get they do get marks against them. It does get put in their permanent file that they blew this call or they blew that call. So anything we can do to, without making the game four hours long, give these guys the video assistance they need, um, then we gotta find a way to do that. And hopefully Gary Bettman and company will, uh, will do exactly that. I actually thought we were done with the officiating talk, but I just realized I had another email here that was cup final related that I thought we should get to. Uh, this one comes from Jordan Lewis. Hi, Mr. McKenzie. I'd like to hear your opinion on the refereeing and a couple of calls in Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Final last night. More specifically, I have interest into rules that I believe should be changed and would like to hear your analysis. A player loses control of his stick for a brief second during play with the blade coming up and barely clipping an opposing player in the lip, drawing a small amount of blood equals an automatic four-minute penalty. Another player completes a hit from behind slash boarding slash high hit on opposing player causing obvious head injury or concussion causing bruising, bleeding, and tearing of nerve fibers in your brain equals a two-minute penalty unless deemed a clear targeted headshot. Growing up playing minor hockey and junior hockey, these players, just like myself, 
were immediately ejected from a game for a small and usually accidental hit from behind. Now we see forwards constantly crushing defensemen from behind, typically with no penalty called or a two-minute penalty if the hit causes injury. I realize concussions and injury are a part of the game and absolutely love the contact and the apocalypse now savagery in this series, but find it hard to understand why a simple high stick is four minutes with blood and a possible career-ending play isn't treated as at least a double minor slash five-minute major with immediate ejection as it is through minor hockey. Love the podcast and hope to hear you discussing a Buffalo Sabre playoff series in the near future. Regards, Jordan from Jordan, Ontario. And if I'm not mistaken, Jordan, Ontario is in wine country near St. Catharines. So thank you, Jordan from Jordan on that. And a number of points to make here, and I'll try to make them real quick. Um, To your point, Jordan, about minor hockey rules, that's precisely what the NHL wants to get away from. They would say, listen, these are men playing a dangerous game at the professional level. Uh, The risk factor goes up considerably. We don't want to lose all the hitting in the game. Uh, This is a multi-million dollar entertainment industry. And yes, it's important that brains are protected, but... It's also very dangerous game. The players know that. And as such, we're not going to have the same sensitivities that, you know, hitting from behind and hit, hits to the head have in minor hockey or even for that matter in international hockey. And, and we can debate that all day long, but that's sort of been the position of the National Hockey League. Now, as for your point, you're obviously making reference here to Oscar Sundquist's hit on Matt Grizzlick that resulted in a one-game suspension, uh, also resulted in a two-minute minor. The referee in that case, by the way, has the discretion to give, on a boarding penalty, he has the discretion to give a two-minute minor, or he can make it a five-minute major, or he can make it a five-minute major and game misconduct. And the, the, the rationale for giving the major um, and the game misconduct is if there is an injury to the head or face. And I'm with you. I, I think this whole notion that injury equals blood in the National Hockey League, specifically as it relates to high sticks. I mean, sometimes a player gets his teeth knocked out, and if the referee doesn't see the tooth getting knocked out um, and there's no blood, um, it's a two-minute minor, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. You get your teeth knocked out. And it might be a two-minute minor if the ref doesn't pick up the, the loss of the, 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 the dental work. Um, but if you get hit in the nose and your nose is bleeding, it's a guaranteed four-minute minor. So that whole definition of injury thing needs work in the NHL. I will grant you that. And honestly, I believe, quite aside from the suspension, at the moment that the, the play occurred, um, the boarding play, um, Sunquist on Grizzlick, um, I thought it was pretty clear that there was a head injury on the play and that the five-minute major in game misconduct easily could have been employed in that situation, but the referee chose not to uh, not to go with that one. Um, that's why I didn't have a problem with the suspension. Uh, I thought that Sunquist got off easy. And even, and, and I've talked a lot about the suspension since it happened. When I left the rink that night, I usually have a pretty good feel one way or the other whether there's going to be a suspension or not. And on that one, I wasn't sure because... There are a lot of people, and player safety does this sometimes, where they'll, they'll rationalize the hell out of it. Oh, Grizzlick's a little guy. Sunquist is a big guy. Uh, Grizzlick was dancing around like a water bug back there, and, and he put himself in a more vulnerable position than he needed to, and there's nothing Sunquist could have done about it. 
I wasn't sure which way that one was going to go um, because what I did know was it was a boarding penalty. It was a forceful and violent check into the boards, and it was deemed to be illegal by the referee, and I believe it was an illegal hit, boarding play. And if you cause a significant injury on the play, and it's an illegal play, I mean, not to make a bad pun here at the expense of poor Matt Grizzlick with, with his brain injury, and that's what a concussion is, um, it's a no-brainer that that's a suspension, in, at least in, in my mind. So um, we'll see where, uh, where we go from here on this one, but I, I do have to believe that uh, um, the whole two-minute minor, four-minute minor for blood is a little archaic, but it is kind of what it is and kind of where we're at, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll proceed accordingly. Uh, now that the calendar is turning from May to June, that is tomorrow is June 1st, um, I would urge you every day for the month of June to uh, bookmark tsn.ca and go to Frank Cervelli's a very fine trade bait board, the TSN trade bait board. He puts an enormous amount of work into it. It's high pressure work. He's got the, uh, the TSN quiz master looking over his shoulder at every moment, and uh, from experience, I can tell you uh, that's intense pressure. Anyways, Frankie does a great job of putting this together, and I thought maybe because we've uh, talked about how crazy June is going to be, um, we could go through the trade bait, review it a little bit here, and, uh, and I'll just riff on a few of the things that are here or not. Um, Phil Kessel, number one on the trade bait board, there's no question. The Pittsburgh Penguins are intent on trading Phil Kessel. That's going to be the core piece that they want to shake up. Um, they had the deal done with the Minnesota Wild for Jason Zucker. I know a lot of people reported that there was going to also be Victor Rask's contract was coming over for Jack Johnson's contract. And I, I heard all that. My understanding, and I could be wrong on this, is that if the trade goes down, and it still could go down, um, that it would be a one-for-one one trade, uh, Kessel for Zucker. Anyways, um, right now it's a moot point because Phil Kessel gave the Pittsburgh Penguins a thumbs down on that because of the flexibility he has with his no-trade clause um, in his contract. And I know that Phil Kessel would like the Pittsburgh Penguins to explore other options for him. Uh, he'd love to go to the Arizona Coyotes and play for Rick Tockett. Um, who he, he got along very well with when Tockett was on the Pittsburgh staff. He was the, the Phil Kessel whisperer of the Pittsburgh Penguins, if you will. Um, but I don't believe the Penguins feel like there's a deal to be made there. Um, Phil Kessel would be happy to go to the Vegas Golden Knights, I believe. But, uh, and, and the only reason I mention the Vegas Golden Knights is because prior to the trade deadline, Vegas did have serious interest in Phil Kessel. Um, but then they made the Mark Stone trade, and they've subsequently signed Mark Stone to the contract. And um, so Phil Kessel to Vegas is not even remotely possible now, but it was. And um, so anyways, there's that. Um, so as I say, I think Phil's trying to push the Penguins to talk to other teams that he knows have interest in him, that he would be more interested in going to than Minnesota. And I get the sense right now that Pittsburgh's having none of that, that uh, uh, I think the latest tack from Pittsburgh will be to say, uh, if we can't get the Kessel for Zucker deal done with Minnesota, then fine, we'll keep Phil. 
and he'll be part of our team, knowing that obviously it's not the most uh, favorable situation when you're a player like Phil Kessel, who knows the, the Penguins are trying to move on from you. Um, but uh, we'll see how that soap opera plays out. I guess, maybe not really a soap opera, um, but we'll see how that one plays out. I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if at some point the, it gets done with Minnesota. Um, Kessel's no to Pittsburgh wasn't really a hard 100% no so much as it was, no, nah, I don't really want to go there. Maybe you could check with some other teams. And I think there's frustration on Kessel's part that the Penguins maybe aren't checking with other teams or aren't interested in doing deals with other teams where Kessel wants to go. So anyways, we'll keep an eye on that one. Uh, Jacob Trouba, the Winnipeg Jets at number two. No surprise there. You're away from unrestricted free agency, as we've talked about on previous Bobcasts. Um, he has not been willing to sign a long-term contract since coming out of entry level with the Winnipeg Jets. And now being a year away, the American defenseman is quite likely to be traded, and there'll be no shortage of suitors. I think the New York Rangers will be all over that one, amongst others. Um, so we'll see what happens there. Uh, Jason Zucker at number three. I mean, he was almost traded... Um, at the deadline, and it fell apart uh, for Michael Froelich of the Calgary Flames. And he was almost traded again for Phil Kessel. So uh, I don't think there's any doubt Jason Zucker's getting traded. In fact, twice he has been, but it just didn't get finalized. So he's probably got to have a complex going on right now, and uh, it's only a matter of time before he gets moved. Nikita Zaitsev at number four. I should probably read my Nikita Zaitsev question, one of many uh, that I got. Um, let's see, where is it here? One second. Oh, this is from our old friend Ben Clancy in Peterborough. Ben sends questions on a regular basis, has had multiple questions asked and answered. Um, one of the things I like about Ben's questions is he doesn't fool around, he gets right to the point. Hey Bob, I saw that Zaitsev has recently been placed on Toronto's trade block following a decision to start fresh. I was wondering what kind of return you think he would fetch and who some possible suitors would be. Um, Zaitsev's situation is fascinating because he's got five years left on a deal that pays him $4.5 million. $4.5 million for a guy that logs top four minutes is not a ridiculous sum of money. Uh, and Zaitsev being in his late 20s, five years, five more years of his contract is, is not ridiculous. But he doesn't generate any appreciable offense whatsoever. His defensive game runs hot and cold, although Mike Babcock is a huge backer of Nikita Zaitsev's defensive ability and we saw that on full display in the first run of the playoffs when Nikita Zaitsev and Jake Muzzin logged the hardest heaviest minutes of any of the Toronto defense in a shutdown role against the Boston Bruins and for whatever you think of the Toronto Maple Leaf defense with Morgan Riley and Ron Hainsey as one pair and Jake Muzzin and Nikita Zaitsev as the other pair and Travis Dermott and Jake Gardner as the third pair that defense crew came within a hair of of beating the Boston Bruins in the first round of the playoffs. And uh, and now it, it's going to be subject to great change in Toronto. Uh, Jake Gardner's likely going to unrestricted free agency. Uh, Ron Hainsey, I wouldn't be surprised if the Leafs bring him back on a uh, short-term deal um, because they've got holes on that blue line. And, uh, and Babcock still finds great use for Hainsey, much to the chagrin of many Maple Leaf fans, but nevertheless... Um, so the Zaitsev thing, asking for a trade for personal reasons out of Toronto, could be a blessing for the Leafs, and some Leaf fans absolutely think it is because they think it's a chance to get out from underneath the contract. Um, 
But the flip side of that is he logged top four minutes, whatever you think of him, and if he's gone, there's a huge hole on the blue line. And if you factor in Gardner leaving, you factor in Zaitsev potentially leaving, you factor in Travis Dermott having off-season shoulder surgery and not being available until probably November. Um, and all of a sudden, this Toronto Maple Leaf defense is Morgan Riley, Jake Muzzin, maybe Ron Hainsey, and a bunch of maybes uh, after that. So Callie Rosen will be, I think, part of their six-man crew. I think he's penciled in. I know there's a lot of Leaf fans who are saying, oh, you know what? Uh, Rasmus Sandin's fantastic. He's 19 years old. Promote him. Had a great year in the American Hockey League. And he did have a great year in the American Hockey League. And he's a B-plus to an A, a prospect for the Toronto Maple Leafs. But he's not ready, not physically mature enough and not perceived to be ready by the organization. And they love what's coming. And it won't be long before he is in the National Hockey League. But there is a strong sense that putting him in the NHL on a full-time basis next year, especially on a team that fancies itself as having the window wide open to contend for the Stanley Cup, not going to cut it. Timothy Lodrigan is the other guy who's a little bit older than Sandine. Um, had injury problems this year, started to turn the corner and play much better for the Marlies later in the season. Um, but there's still some considerable talk that he's not ready for primetime minutes, uh, certainly not from a defensive point of view. And, and keep in mind that, uh, again, whatever you think of Zaitsev, Babcock used him in a significant defense-first role. And um, he's not going to put 19- and 20-year-olds that are physically immature and or not capable of playing defense on a blue line that is supposed to be a Stanley Cup contender. So it is both an opportunity and, and, and a problem for the Toronto Maple Leafs that Zaitsev wants out. Uh, it's an opportunity because maybe they're going to um, get creative and, and move some other forward bodies to bring in a more experienced defenseman that would be an upgrade on Zaitsev and might not uh, carry the long-term cap implications that Zaitsev does. Um, but it's also quite possible that uh, um, they're going to lose a top four-minute defenseman um, and not be able to replace him. Uh, as easily as they'd like. Now, as for Ben's question as to who will be interested in him, there will be interest in him, but because of his contract, the return's going to be limited or soft. And the Leafs are not, and I repeat, not in a position because of their cap situation with the Mitch Marner negotiations coming up and everything else the Leafs are going through with the salary cap. They are not in a position to retain salary on Zaitsev and make it more palatable for his deal, uh, to facilitate his deal. So, you know, soft return on one end, not be able to take back bad contracts on the other end, um, that one could get interesting. And, and in the spirit of what we were talking about late May, early June, and all of June being a crazy month, while we were recording this podcast, my colleague Pierre Lebrun tweeted that the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Los Angeles Kings have been having some trade conversations involving Patrick Marlowe. And uh, Marlowe, of course, is a problematic contract for the Leafs at a little over $6 million. And if they can move that contract um, without having to take back uh, a, a big dollar albatross, they, uh, they would love to do that. And, and that could help solve a lot of the, the cap issues that the, the Leafs are working on. The LA Kings, of course, insert your own joke here about the Kings getting younger by getting Patrick Marlowe. But uh, or older, uh, be that as it may. But anyways, um, 
you know, I know Alec Martinez was a defenseman that when the Leafs got Jake Muzzin out of L.A., that the Kings had made eminently available. And there's a lot of people think that Martinez could be on the move. I'm not tying Martinez necessarily to the Leafs. But, um, you know, if the Leafs are able to facilitate moving out contracts like Zaitsev's and Marlowe, and they can somehow parlay that into experienced NHL defensemen who could fill the role that Zaitsev or Gardner had, well, hallelujah if you're a Toronto Maple Leaf fan. Might be easier said than done, but those are certainly some of the types of things that... uh, that we're looking at as we look at the trade bait board. Let's go back to the trade bait board. Hold on one second, fire up the iPad. So yeah, Zaitsev at number four. Uh, P.K. Subban, Nashville at number five. Keep an eye on Nashville in this offseason. Um, they've got the Roman Yossi contract extension they would like to do this uh, summer. He's a year away from unrestricted free agency. They want to lock him up on a long-term deal. In order to do that, they're likely to have to move bodies. P.K. Subban is a body who could be moved. Uh, Kyle Turris is another body that could be moved out of Nashville. And I also think quite aside from opening up cap space um, and dollars to allocate to Yossi, that general manager David Poyle recognizes that instead of getting closer to the Stanley Cup this year, they got further away. So I think he's open-minded about virtually anything. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that he's going to trade uh, Philip Forsberg or Victor Arvidsson or what have you. But I, I have to believe that the, the mind of David Poyle right now is very fertile for talking trade and looking at ways to continue to reshape the team, reload, if you will, and uh, try and get them back closer to being in a Stanley Cup final than further away, which is where they got last year. Uh, number six on trade bait, Ryan Callahan, Tampa Bay. They obviously want to shed some dollars. Number seven, Michael Froelich from Calgary. They want to free up some dollars uh, to sign their restricted free agent, Matthew Kachuk. Uh, sure enough, there's Kyle Turris at number eight from Nashville. Uh, number nine, Kevin Shattenkirk. Uh, I could see them trying to move that salary. Uh, they're interested in trying to trade for Truba, I'm sure. They'll be interested in Eric Carlson if he goes to unrestricted free agency. Um, so uh, consider the Rangers a player in just about everything, as always. Uh, Shane Gostisbehere from Philadelphia. Don't believe the Flyers are uh, necessarily shopping Gostisbehere, but they do want to make some moves, and we addressed in detail um, what's going on with the Philadelphia Flyers in the last episode of the Bobcast, and we kind of concluded that Gostisbehere might be the logical figure to move um, with the young defensemen they've got, like Provorov and Sandheim, uh, Myers, um, and uh, keeping the veteran McDonald, keeping the veteran Gudis, if they want to uh, continue to reshape their blue line a little bit with a veteran talent, um, Gostisbehere might be the kind of guy that has to go um, for maybe somebody who's with a little more defensive prowess. So we'll keep an eye on that. But anyways, that's your top 10. Oh, I should, there's another letter here. Let me go over email. Where is it? It's a follow-up. Here we go. It's called actual, says follow-up, Chucky Two Trades. And uh, this comes from Andrew Walton, who uh, w- was asking the questions about the Philadelphia Flyers on the last Bobcast, and we answered uh, that in detail. And he was—he kept on referring to Chuck Fletcher, the general manager of the Philadelphia Flyers, as Chucky Two Trades, which I laughed at and said I didn't know where that came from. Here's the email follow-up. Thank you for answering my question. The term Chucky Two Trades 
came from the Flyperbole podcast. It's a Flyers podcast, very unique and full of sarcasm, very funny and a different taste than the normal team-centric podcasts you hear. For my question, I'm going to try and strike gold twice here. Could Chucky two trades maybe work out a deal and take on Big Z's contract, Nikita Zaitsev, if it meant attaining Kadri? Ghost would be in play, obviously. Thank you for your answers, Bob. Go Flyers. Um, I'd be surprised if Zaitsev is the type of defensive stalwart that the Philadelphia Flyers will be looking to uh, put in their top four. Um, but to your point, um, when you mentioned Nazem Kadri, if, if General Manager Kyle Dubas of the Toronto Maple Leafs is truly going to get creative um, on Zaitsev trades, he may have to look at some of the options that would include um, trading guys like Kadri or Nylander or Connor Brown. And if you go back to the prior Bobcast, we talked about you know Nylander being sort of the high-risk potential trade piece Cadre being the mid-risk potential trade piece and Connor Brown being the much lower trade risk uh, as far as the Leafs go. But uh, anyways, I just wanted to get the uh, Chucky two trades follow up in there um, as we talk about the trade bait board. And, and let's quickly go back to trade bait. Let me fire up the iPad here. Uh, the only reason I wanted to mention is because number 11 is Travis Hamannick of the Calgary Flames. Um, I've been hearing a lot that Calgary is very intent on moving a defenseman, either Travis Hamanick or TJ Brody, or JT Brody, TJJT, whatever. Anyways, Brody um, and Hamanick are two names we're hearing a lot of. Because the Flames have good young defensemen they feel can take over for one of those guys, and they are also, as I mentioned when I talked about the Michael Froelich potential trade, they are trying to free up dollars um, to be able to sign uh, restricted free agent Matthew Kachuk. So anyways, uh, bookmark your uh, TSN trade bait board. Uh, follow Frank Saravelli on Twitter. Uh, he's got lots of uh, trade bait stuff. And uh, there, I've done my TSN promo for the day. Should probably devote a couple of minutes to the Jeff Skinner situation with the Buffalo Sabres. Skinner, of course, is the 40-goal man pending unrestricted free agent who the Sabres are trying to get signed. I was on NBC pregame show uh, prior to uh, game two of the Stanley Cup final, and I talked about Skinner, and there was a bit of fallout from it because I said I was talking about the negotiations, as I have for a while, and, and I've said the same thing I've always said, that Skinner's looking for an eight-year deal with an AAV that starts with a nine, and the Buffalo Sabres are prepared, I believe, to do an eight-year deal with Skinner, but they would prefer the AAV comes in with a number that begins with eight. So, you know, take a number between 8.5 and 9.5, and that's kind of the universe where Skinner's reps and Jason Botterill, the GM of the Buffalo Sabres, have been going back and forth. Um, so anyways, I repeated that and said, though, this was a big week because on Tuesday, I believe there was dialogue. With the Combine being in Buffalo, a lot of the agents are there. Obviously, the Sabres are in Buffalo all the time anyways, but all the rest of the National Hockey League is in Buffalo this week for the NHL Draft Combine. Um, and there have been multiple conversations, dialogues, meetings between Skinner's reps and Jason Botterill of the Buffalo Sabres. And so I said on the... Um, on the NBC broadcast that it, it, I believe that it's getting much closer. 
uh, to happening one way or the other. And I think people took that to mean that I was saying that the actual negotiation itself was down to the final cents or dollars. And I wasn't trying to project that Buffalo was prepared to do this or that or vice versa. The Skinner was prepared to do this or that. I was simply saying this is the week when it should come to a head. That Skinner's either going to sign an extension with the Buffalo Sabres or he's going to declare that he's going to unrestricted free agency. My, my best guess on it is that, you know, he's, um, he's likely to get more likely to get signed than not. I don't know how the Buffalo Sabres cannot sign him, to be honest. Um, and I understand you have to negotiate and you have to try and, you know, listen, a few years from now, people will be looking, and if Skinner does sign for more than $9 million a year, people will be looking at the contract and, and as Rasmus Dahlin's coming out of entry level and looking for big money and some of the other contracts the Buffalo Sabres have to do along with Jack Eichel's $10 million deal, suddenly you find yourself in in cap hell pretty fast as the Toronto Maple Leafs um, when you've got really good young players or you, you sign players like John Tavares or Jeff Skinner to big money contracts. So anyways, um, I understand why the Sabres are fighting for every cent or dollar on this, but at the end of the day, they're a team that had trouble scoring goals last year, and that was with Jeff Skinner in the lineup. Um, I would hate to think what the reaction of Buffalo Sabres ticket buying public would be if they don't get a deal done for Jeff Skinner for the sake of 250k a year or something along those lines. So as I said, I think Skinner's in a, in a favorable negotiating position. And, um, and as I said, the, the terminology I used being very close the other day was more in terms of the time as opposed to, the, the, in other words, this week, as opposed to the actual dollars. Um, but uh, if it gets done with Skinner, it's going to be at a number around nine million a year, um, give or take a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars, and um, so we'll see on that one. We'll keep an eye on it, and as I said, um, I think that dialogue is actually continuing today between uh, the Sabers and Skinner's camp. So we'll see if they can uh, get something finalized or not. Okay, um, question here from uh, Adrian Costanzo, who says, Hey Bob, big fan of your work on TSN, and thought I'd begin listening to your podcast. I'm loving it so far. Since I am new to it, I apologize if you've heard this question before. With myself being interested in prospects in the NHL draft, what is your process when creating the TSN draft rankings? Is there a certain methodology, philosophy you use, consensus from other scouts, etc.? Almost... How much emphasis do you put on analytics when assessing a prospect? Thanks a lot. That from Adrian. Well, I'll tell you what, Adrian, I am going to definitely answer your question, but the only reason I read it now was to tease it as a promo for the next episode of the Bobcast, I believe season, uh, season three, episode 19, that if all things being equal, I would suspect will come two weeks, maybe Sunday or Monday, probably from Las Vegas. Um, is that the right? Wait a second. What's the date today? So it's the 31st. Um, da, 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 yeah. So, yeah, in two weeks. I got all screwed up with my calendar there. Um, I will have the draft rankings all done. And I don't want to do the penultimate Bobcast of this season. That's the next to last Bobcast of this season until I've got the draft rankings done because we can talk almost exclusively 
about those draft rankings and about the draft. Um, so the next episode of the Bobcast will probably come your way on the Sunday before the draft or the Monday before the draft when I get to Vegas and uh, the draft rankings are done. And Adrian, I will go in-depth on how the prospect uh, rankings are done as well as go in-depth on what those rankings uh, are and uh, what other big hockey news we've got on the week leading up to the draft. So that's just a little uh, self-promotion and promo for the next episode of the Bobcast coming your way in a shade over two weeks. Um, obviously, uh, I'm going to have to get going here soon. I've got to get over to the rink um, to do my TSN Sports Center hits on the Stanley Cup Final. I've got an episode of Insider Trading to do with Pierre Lebrun today. Um, and uh, i got to get back in Stanley Cup mode here. Um, but in that vein, a friend of the show, Alan Steele, uh, is from Boston. Alan Steele um, sent me a very nice Blue Line Holdings Corporation blue hoodie that I have hanging up in my dressing room at TSN. Um, we always like to get Alan's questions on here. And so we've got a couple of them, actually. So the first one, let me find it here. I've got to go back to the Bobcast email file. Bear with me for a moment. Uh, let's see. Okay, uh, just the other day, on Thursday, as a matter of fact, that would be yesterday, Alan wrote, Hi, Bob. Chilly, rainy weather. Perfect for a hoodie. Good self-promotion, Alan. What is your opinion of Boston as a city? Favorite restaurant and or bar? Do you enjoy your visits here? I left the door unlocked at the house. If nearby, drop in for a glass of wine or a beer. Keep up the great work. Alan Steele, Blue Line Holdings Corp. in Medford, Massachusetts. Um, yes, the rain and chilly weather was not ideal, but uh, nevertheless, it is what it is. I love Boston as a city. It's awesome. Um, I don't have one favorite restaurant and or bar. But I do like being within, <clears throat> excuse me, walking distance of the North End because I do like wine and I do like Italian restaurants. And as we all know, the uh, the Italian North End of Boston is fantastic. Uh, last Saturday night, went to Ray Bork's restaurant, Tresca. That's a very nice restaurant. Uh, there's a place across the road. I think it's called Luco. That's very very good. Um, in any case, um, yeah. So that's the, the Boston angle. And from Alan's previous question, and this one was back in April, um, it's subject matter, least fave player. Hi, Bob. Time for a new question. Everyone talks about their favorite player. Let's change it up. Now that fake tough guy Max Lapierre is out of the league, my least favorite player is Cedric Paquette. He is the king of cheap shots. Lapierre had fear in his eyes when he actually faced anyone. Paquette is on his way to that status. Who is, was your least favorite player and why? The Bobcast is the only podcast that I listen to. Keep up the great work. P.S. Nice hoodie. Uh, you see a nice hoodie theme going there. And Bill Belichick was the flag waver for Game 2 in uh, Boston. He, uh, he should have a Blue Line Holdings Corp. Blue hoodie. Um, it's not quite New England Patriot blue, but uh, more of a lighter blue. But nevertheless, as for your question on hated players, I try not to hate on anybody. Alan, I'm a lover more than a hater. Um, but as have I've mentioned on previous podcasts, um, Max Lapierre was a guy who pushed my buttons the way he played. Um, used to get me pretty agitated. Um, and uh, so here's one that'll be a bit of a surprise to Alan. And I, 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 I don't mean to offend anybody from Boston, especially during the Stanley Cup final. 
But when I was a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, I no longer am, but when I was a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, growing up in Toronto in the late 60s, early 70s, before journalism and Harold Ballard cured me of being a Leaf fan, the guy who really pushed my buttons was my namesake, Johnny Pye McKenzie, the Boston Bruins. Oh man, in, the, in that crazy Forbes, Kennedy, Pat Quinn, Bobby Orr love triangle, um, back then, uh, Pye McKenzie used to drive me nuts. I hated the fact that we had the same last name. And just the look on his face used to infuriate me as a young Leaf fan. Of course, I fully appreciated his ability to be an agitator and to, to play the game as hard as he did. But, uh, well, Pye Face McKenzie um, was somebody who used to push my buttons. But uh, looking back on it now, of course, now I love Johnny Pye McKenzie, and uh, very proud to share the, the same surname and even the correct spelling, not to be confused with that bad M-A-C-K spelling, M small c, cap K, E-N, Z-I-E. I said that for all my uh, American friends and those in Boston, and there you go. And as I said, uh, special thanks to Alan Steele for being such a big friend of the show constantly sending in uh, questions, remarks, hoodies, and uh, you name it. And uh, maybe when I get back to Boston for Game 5, I'll, uh, I'll have to look Alan up. And, uh, or maybe not. You never know. No promises, Alan. Um, okay, where are we going next here? Okay, final question, and then we've got a little bit of listener feedback. This one comes from Braden Shaw, Port Hope, Ontario. Hey Bob, I love the Bobcast. This past minor midget draft, I was unfortunately passed up and felt that I just wasn't enough on the scout's radar. I was wondering how to get into more scouts' eyes and ultimately impress them. I was wondering if you have any advice since you were one of the greatest hockey analysts and successfully see it through with your son and NCAA Division I hockey. Thank you for your time. Hopefully I'll be on your NHL draft 2021 Prospects Board. Best of luck, Braden Shaw. Well, Braden, thanks very much. Um, this would make Braden a 15-year-old. And in fact, one of the one of the benefits of the world that we live in, it's mostly a benefit, I guess it could be a, could be a negative, I suppose. Hold on one second here. We're going to go... Okay, what we're going to do here is look up Braden Shaw on Elite Prospects. Dot com. So we type in Braden Shaw Elite. Sometimes I go to HockeyDB, sometimes I go to Elite Prospects. They are both fantastic tools and you should bookmark both of them uh, for your hockey viewing pleasure. So here we go. So Braden played this past season with the Clarington Toros of the uh, Eastern AAA minor midget hockey league, 33 games, defenseman, two goals, 10 points, uh, nine penalty minutes. Braden's listed at 5'11", 146 pounds. And as Braden points out in his email to me, he was not selected in the uh, recent, uh, it would have been in April, 2019 OHL priority selections, or better known as the minor midget draft. Now, Braden plays on a team, the Clarington Toros, that didn't get a lot of guys drafted. Um, but having said that, um, they play against all the teams 
the Duke did get a lot of guys drafted, and therefore the scouts would have seen Braden and his team play quite often. So let me approach Braden's question from a couple of points of view, because I think there are probably a lot of kids and or hockey dads or moms who have questions like this. Um, and, and I guess the, the, the first one I'll go to, the default, the default answer for a question like Braden's is, you know what, Braden, stick with it, work hard, have fun, um, and don't let anybody define you just because you didn't get drafted in the 2019 OHL draft doesn't mean you couldn't get drafted in the midget draft down the road or that you might still not turn out to be a fine hockey player. And there are countless examples, example after example after example of guys who don't get drafted and do end up going on to have great hockey success. And I can tell you one of those stories, and I will because it's, it's kind of an interesting one. Um, there's a kid who played this past season with the Kitchener Rangers, my son's, my son Mike's team. His name is Jonathan Yancis. And Jonathan Yancis, uh, he's a 1999-born player. I'm just calling his profile up here. Hold on one second. Internet at the hotel is a little slow. There we go. So Jonathan Yancis played his minor midget year for the Markham Waxers in the same Eastern AAA League that uh, OMHA ETA league that, um, that Braden played in. And uh, in that draft year, Jonathan Yancis had 16 goals and 29 points in 34 games. You know, decent fair to middle in numbers in minor midget hockey. And he did not get drafted in the 2015 minor midget draft. Back then, there was no supplementary midget draft, which has since been um, put in place by the Ontario Hockey League. Um, so... Jonathan Yancis came back and played his second, his his uh, his first full midget year in 2015-16 for the Markham Waxers midget team. He did not get drafted in the 2016 OHL priority selection, so he went back to the Markham Waxers for his second full year of midget hockey. It was in that second full year of midget hockey. That Jonathan Yancis, who by the way is listed at 6'2, 209 pounds, um, started to attract some attention as quote unquote an OHL free agent. And I know this because my son Mike was home for Christmas, and my uh, other son Sean was also home for Christmas. And Mike asked Sean and I if we wanted to go to the Markham Village Arena and scout a prospect, a free agent prospect. Uh, who was playing for the Markham Waxers. So uh, family McKenzie trip. The three McKenzies headed off to Markham Village, and we watched Jonathan Yancis and the Markham Waxers play. I believe they were playing the York Simcoe Express that night in December. And um, I immediately picked, and Mike says, try and pick out which guy that I'm here to see. And uh, it didn't take me very long, and no flies on me. Uh, I saw that Yancis was one of the bigger players, moved pretty well for a big guy, and had nice hands. Anyways, um, long story short, he ended up signing as a free agent with the Kitchener Rangers and um, was actually the last, um, the, the, as I said, the midget OHL supplementary midget draft, not to be confused with their minor midget draft, was put in place not too long after the Kitchener Rangers signed Jonathan Yancis as a free agent. So Jonathan came in and finished that 2016-17 season with the Kitchener Rangers. He scored three goals in 24 games. 
Um, the next year, in 2017-18, Jonathan Yances played a full season with the Rangers, 59 games played, and uh, 5 goals and 12 points. This past season, as his 19-year-old uh, season, uh, Jonathan Yances scored 50, count them, 5-0 goals in 68 games for the uh, Kitchener Rangers and was a dominant offensive player in the OHL. 50 goals, 73 points, 68 games played. Um, two goals in four playoff games as Kitchener was swept by the, uh, the, the Guelph Storm. So, Braden, I guess, you know, you use people like Jonathan Yancis and others as an example of, hey, they didn't get drafted, and look, they did really, really well. Um, and, and in the case of Yancis, he, uh, he, he's obviously gone through two National Hockey League drafts, hasn't been taken, and with the NHL draft coming up here in the next little while, I'll be curious to see whether anybody decides to uh, give a 19-year-old a chance. It's not very often that happens, but occasionally does. Anyways, um, terrific goal scorer, and uh, good for Jonathan, good for the Kitchener Rangers for having him. Uh, great kid, tremendous student, and, and all of that. Back to Braden. Um, so yeah, Braden, people are going to tell you, you know, well, look at this guy, look at that guy, they were successful. And, and, and that's always inspiring advice. And, and I guess the point I would make is to simply tell you, you know, don't let other people define who you are. If you love hockey and if you have a passion for it, then keep playing it. Play it for as long as you can, as long as you enjoy playing it and want to put in the work. And not having seen you play, I, I can't sit here and say you're going to have the same success at the OHL level that Jonathan Yance has had or that you're going to get a scholarship or any of those things. I just know that the important thing in life, whether you're a hockey player or anything else, is to you know, have passion for what you do, but don't do it for you know, the, the, uh, uh, making it to the, a certain level. You know, don't say, I'm only going to play hockey if I make it to the OHL. Um, play hockey and be the best you can be at it because you like hockey and you want to be the best you can be at it and dedicate yourself to that. And if it's meant to be, then it's meant to be. And if it's not meant to be, then you had great fun and gave your all to be successful at something. And, you know, some people would say, never give up. Well, that's, I, I, wouldn't, I would never tell somebody blanket advice, never give up on your dream. Because sometimes you need to give up on your dream. Sometimes there comes a point in time where it's, if, if, if devoting yourself entirely to be the best hockey player you can possibly be, if it ceases to be fun and it ceases to get results, then maybe you've got another passion that needs to explore. One door closes, another one opens. So it's really up to you, and, and it's hard as a 15-year-old going on 16 the, to know when's the proper time to give up one thing to pursue another thing. So my blanket advice to you and everybody else would simply be don't let other people define who you are or what you are. Um, dedicate yourself to the things that you have great passion for and that you love to do. And if you, don't, if you stop having great passion for them, then don't dedicate yourself to them and um, find something else. And uh, you know, if, if you follow that advice, which I kind of give to myself, and I, gave to, I certainly gave it to my kids, um, you know, there comes a point in time. Hey, I can remember when my son Mike was in his second year of pro hockey and it wasn't going the way that he wanted it to. And we sat down and father-son chat. 
had a very frank discussion. And I said, listen, you can love hockey as much as you want, but, you know, this is the reality of where you're at and what your life's all about and what it's going to be. And it's probably going to be a lot more of the same. And what the same was at that time was frustrating them. So I said, you got to, you know, you got to know when's the proper time to say enough's enough and uh, and move on to something else. And he did. And and he, he redirected all his energy and passion to to hockey in a different form. And, and that was being an assistant coach in the OHL. And that's led him to be a general manager in the Ontario Hockey League. So, so Braden, best of luck to you um, and follow your dreams, whether they're hockey related or not. Work hard at them as long as you're enjoying the hard work part of it. And uh, there you go. Anyways, uh, we'll conclude things here with a little listener feedback. This one comes from Nicola Vezina, who says, Hey, Bob, after hearing your comments recently on the future of the Bobcast and the uncertainty that lies upon us, I wanted to reach out and tell you a story on how much your work is appreciated. I got an opportunity to work at a mill in Kenora, Ontario, right after finishing my university degree back in 2016. One December day, I was coming off a three-day night shift run, stumbling around my apartment, enjoying a coffee, and trying to be productive while listening to this new hit TSN podcast, you guessed it, the Bobcast. Specifically, I was listening to Season 1, Episode 5. At the 47.50 mark, you start answering a question from Dave Vezina. Lots of Vezinas in the world, so I don't dwell on the name too much. And you were shortly telling the story of a cold-calling folks in North Bay and asking if they are watching Hockey Night in Canada on a Saturday night. Next thing I know, you were talking about calling my Uncle Randy's house, and Dave had answered. This woke me from my stupor and put a big stupid smile on my face. Just like that, during a sleepy December day with the holidays just around this corner, this new podcast made me feel like I was back home. I was actually not that far away. As we've seen from your listener question portions of your podcast, your voice reaches all across the world. I'm sure that my story is not unique and that you've made others feel closer to home and comfort through the medium of hockey and broadcasting. So with that being said, keep up the good work. We appreciate what you and all the staff at TSN do for the hockey and sports community. Cheers, Nick Vezina from North Bay, Ontario. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nick. That's a very uh, nice listener feedback and and Nick was referring to a story I told back in season one when I was with Gord Miller in North Bay and I was writing a column for the Toronto Star and we just decided to take the phone book and start looking up famous hockey names and have some fun calling the house and asking for uh, these famous hockey names. So to call up the Vezina household in uh, North Bay and check to see if there were any Vezina caliber goaltenders in the Vezina household. And uh, anyways, it just goes to the whole small world thing. And whether it's getting to know guys like Alan Steele in Boston, or Ben Clancy in Peterborough, um, or uh, the Vezinas, Dave and Nick and virtually everybody else, um, that's kind of the fun part of this little thing we call the Bobcast community. So uh, that's it for this episode. I got a hustle, uh, much to do, not a lot of time to do it. And uh, thanks for listening. Um, I'm now going to climb out of the base 
of the Stanley Cup and uh, return to my normal voice and uh, go off and do some work. So, uh, as I said throughout the Bobcast, uh, have a happy June. TSN Trade Bait Board, stay on it. Uh, follow all the TSN people on Twitter, Frank Saravelli, myself, Darren Dreger, Pierre Lebrun, you name it. Uh, we've got it for you, and it's going to be a crazy busy month with lots and lots and lots of hockey news. Enjoy the Stanley Cup final. I know I will here in St. Louis and then back in Boston. And, uh, of course, go Raptors. And uh, to Jimmy Hoops, Jimmy, we miss you very much here on the Stanley Cup beat, but you're doing uh, God's work on the Raptor beat for all Canadians. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks very much. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's At TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.